0: Hello. Welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I am your host, Edward Havens. Welcome to our third episode of our miniseries on Orion Pictures. Episode 1 covered the founding of the company and its first four years of existence, 1979 to 1982. Episode 2 covered the films of 1983 and 1984. This time, we'll touch on their films of 1985 and 1986. So grab a beer or other quenching libation sit back, relax, and let's get on with the show. The first Orion movie of 1985 would be The Falcon and the Snowman, adapted from the 1979 novel about the true life exploits of Christopher Boyce and Andrew Dalton Lee, two young American men who were convicted of selling U.S. security secrets to the then-Soviet Union. The movie paired TAPS co-stars Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn as Boyce and Lee under the direction of Midnight Cowboy's John Schlesinger. The film is one of the best movies of either Hutton or Penn's career, and would also be of note for being the first produced screenplay by Stephen Zalian, who would go on to write or co-write Awakenings, Schindler's List, The first Mission Impossible movie, Gangs of New York, Moneyball, the American version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, and The Irishman. The $12 million movie would get some great reviews, including glowing four-star reviews from both Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert, and would do great numbers on its opening weekend, January 25th, grossing $2.3 million from just 265 theaters. But by week three, When the film would expand to 914 theaters, more than triple its opening weekend screen count, it would only gross $2.4 million. The film would play throughout the spring, finishing its run with a decent $17.1 million. But what endears the film to me is that it's responsible for teaming jazz guitarist Pat Metheny with David Bowie to create the film's score, which includes one of the greatest songs Bowie would ever be featured on. The mean seasons is a term that refers to the heat wave that often affects major sections of South Florida during the summer months. It's also the name of a rather banal newspaper drama released on February 15th that starred Kurt Russell and Mariel Hemingway. Do you want Absence of Malice without Paul Newman and Sally Field? Do you want Body Heat without William Hurt and Kathleen Turner? Do you want The Bird with the Crystal plumage not directed by Dario Argento? Great! The Mean Season is the movie for you. Russell plays a Miami newspaper reporter who promises his girlfriend they'll leave the city for a better life elsewhere after he's done covering a series of horrific murders happening around the city. That is, until the murderer starts calling the reporter with hints about their next murders. Creepy. It's like watching a Hitchcock movie where Hitch decides one MacGuffin is like six or seven too few. Why throw audiences a little bit of misdirection when literally every reveal ends up being a red herring. Audiences wouldn't know. They completely ignored the film. Opening in 876 theaters, the mean seasons would only gross one and a half million dollars and would leave theaters four weeks later with a total of 4.3 million dollars. The first Orion Classics movie for 1985 was Werner Herzog's Where the Green Ants Dream. The film was vintage Herzog, mixing facts and fiction and telling a story of a group of aboriginal activists who were involved in a land feud with a mining company in Australia. And in typical Herzog fashion, he would cast a number of the activists who were involved in the feud to play versions of themselves. And in typical Herzog fashion, he'd piss someone off real fierce once the final product was finished. Philip Adams, a popular figure in Australian entertainment, who recommended to Herzog many of those activists that would be cast in the movie, would become so infuriated by the movie that he would pen an op-ed piece in a widely read Australian weekly magazine that was simply called, Damn it, Herzog, you're a liar! Which isn't necessarily a wrong point of view. The whole concept of the protest as presented by Herzog, that the green ant was a totem animal that helped to create the world and humans, that the area where the mining company wanted to work was where the green ants went to dream, and disturbing the green ants would destroy humanity was pure Herzogian fiction. The film would open at the prestigious Lincoln Plaza Cinemas on February 8th, but it would not open in Los Angeles until it arrived at the Beverly Center Cineplex three months later, and then it was gone. Also opening in very limited release on February 15th was The Bay Boy, a Canadian movie starring Liv Ullman and in his first feature film leading role, a then 16-year-old Kiefer Sutherland. Written and directed by Daniel Petrie, who would base the story on his own life growing up in a small mining town in Nova Scotia, the film would be a success in Canada, winning the Genie, Canada's version of the Oscars, for Best Canadian Film, Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor, and three technical awards. But in America, the film was here and gone in a matter of weeks, barely grossing $162,000 in just over a month. March 1st would see the release of Orion's fourth collaboration with Woody Allen, the terrific Depression-era romantic comedy The Purple Rose of Cairo. Over the fact that 24 hours ago I was in an Egyptian tomb. I didn't know any of you wonderful people. I gotta speak to you. You mean me? Tom Baxter's come down off the screen and he's running around New Jersey. How can he come off the screen? It's impossible. It's never happened before in history. In New Jersey, anything can happen. Come away with me to Cairo. Kyra. But you just met each other. Love at first sight doesn't only happen just in the movies. You coming from a costume party? No, I'm just back from Cairo, where I uh, searched in vain for the legendary Purple Rose. How about that? I wonder what it's like out there. Hey, what the hell kind of movie is this? Why don't you stop yapping? We've got problems of our own. Is that what I told you? I you I the light your marriage has come to an impasse, sir. I'm not Tom. I'm Gil Shepherd. I play Tom. What? How do you know Tom? You're Gil. G- oh, my God. I don't believe it where is he why do you want to tie me up what kind of a club is this anyhow got to get him back in the picture then we turn off the projector and burn the prints and the negative see there you go Tom. you're ruining everything you are you're the one i saw the movie just last week this is not what happened i'm confused I, i'm married I, I just met a wonderful new man he's fictional but you can't have everything Jeff Daniels may have been good in terms of endearment, but this was his moment to shine, and he does as a fictional character from a movie called The Purple Rose of Cairo, who comes off the screen and into the real life of one of the people watching the movie, a waitress in a bad marriage played by Mia Farrow. The actor playing the character, also played by Daniels, must fly from Hollywood to New Jersey to convince his fictional counterpart to go back into the movie. But it almost wasn't Daniels in the dual role. The film originally started production with Michael Keaton in the lead, but Allen would realize after a week and a half of shooting that Keaton, while being a very good actor, was not right for this role. Keaton would amicably leave the production, and Daniels would be on set by the end of the second week. Actors who would last the entire shoot included Danny Aiello, Edward Herman, Diane Wiest, and John Wood. It's one of Allen's best films. But like most Allen movies, the $15 million period movie would do very well opening and limited release in major cities, grossing $114,000 in just three theaters. But the movie would never play in more than 419 screens in any week, and while it would play in theaters until the end of July, it would only gross $10.6 million. Orion Classics would be back a week later on March 8th with the French movie My New Partner. It's an amiable comedy about a Parisian cop played by the phenomenal Philippe Noray who takes small bribes for minor criminals on his beat and tries to corrupt his idealistic new partner after his previous partner gets busted for being on the grift. The film would win the Cesar for Best Picture of 1984 as well as Best Director and Best Editing. It's a fun and funny movie which was virtually ignored by American movie-going audiences. Now what do Giancarlo Esposito, Laurie Metcalf, Aidan Quinn, John Turturro, and Stephen Wright all have in common. They would all see early film roles in a Rosanna Arquette movie Orion would release on March 29th. Oh, um, it's also Madonna's first movie Desperately Seeking Susan. <laughs> When the film was being planned to begin production in early September of 1984, Madonna wasn't quite the star yet. She had already enjoyed two top 10 singles from her debut album, but her star making appearance on the first MTV Video Music Awards, where she emerged from a giant wedding cake in a wedding dress, had only happened three days before cameras started rolling. Realizing what they had, literally lightning in a bottle, Orion implemented script changes to add more Madonna to the story as production began. Rosanna Arquette, who took the movie because it was supposed to be the first time she was supposed to carry a movie on her shoulders, saw her role start to shrink, which caused tensions on the set between the two young actresses. Arquette would admit in an interview after the movie came out that she never would have made the movie had she known just how big a star Madonna would have become during the filming of the movie, and just how much of the movie would change because of it. The movie was originally written to be an R-rated raunchy comedy, but now, with the newest biggest star and all of her younger fans to consider, the movie was changed to become a less restrictive PG-13 movie. The movie is quite enjoyable. Arquette plays a bored New Jersey housewife who finds more adventure than she hoped for when she starts to follow a series of personal ads in a New York tabloid paper that always starts with desperately seeking Susan. Madonna, as Susan, isn't really acting so much as playing a slight variant of the soon-to-be-established Madonna persona, but that's great for this movie. And all the changes to the script and the production schedule couldn't have been easy on director Susan Seidelman, who had graduated from the $80,000 smithereens to this $4.5 million production. But she showed she was amongst the best young directors of her generation. She wisely kept Madonna from overshadowing the film, and she filled smaller roles with some of her friends from the New York underground music and acting scene, including Annie Carlyle, the star and writer of The Amazing Liquid Sky, punk icon Richard Hell, The Shirts lead singer Annie Golden, East Village comedian Rocket's Red Glare, who for a time was the bodyguard of Sid Vicious, and who some claim was the real killer of Nancy Spongeon, performance artist Ann Magnuson, and Jim Jarmusch regulars Richard Edson and John Lurie. By the time the film opened in theaters, Madonna was a superstar. Yet, Orion was somehow cautious when sending the film out. They'd spend nearly $2 million marketing the film pre-opening, one of their highest marketing expenditures to date, but then they only released the film into 268 theaters. The film did well that weekend, grossing more than a one point five million dollars or a five thousand six hundred and ninety four dollars per screen average. To put that into perspective, in twenty nineteen the average movie ticket price was nine dollars sixteen cents. In nineteen eighty five, the average ticket price was about three hundred fifty five, or roughly thirty nine percent of what it was in twenty nineteen. On the last weekend of box office figures before the coronavirus pandemic, March 6th through March 8th, 2020, Disney Pixar's Onward was the number one movie in America with a $39 million gross in 4,310 theaters for a per screen average of $9,076. Now multiply that by 0.39 to adjust for the change in the average ticket price from 85 to 2019 and now you're looking at a per-screen average of just $3,540. Now, granted, a PG-rated Pixar movie is going to sell more lower-priced kids' tickets than a PG-13-rated Madonna movie, but unless every single person who saw Onward was a kid or was an adult going to see an early bird show, that wouldn't completely explain the nearly 40% difference. The point being, the movie did rather well, despite what appears to be a soft opening. And I'm sorry to you listeners who might feel that was a little too inside baseball for you, but I'm figuring if you're listening to a podcast about 80s movies that goes into detail about every release from an independent film distributor, you probably don't mind a bit too much inside baseball. Anyway, Orion would add 58 more screens for Week 2, another 434 for Week 3, and another 348 in Week 4, for its highest screen count of 1,108 theaters. And week four would see its highest weekend gross of the entire run, $2.7 million. After that, it would slowly start shedding screens here and there, dropping back below 500 screens in week 12. The film would continue to play throughout the spring and summer. And at the end of August, more than five months after the film was released, Desperately Seeking Susan was still playing at the Bleecker Street Cinemas in Greenwich Village, New York, which makes sense as a portion of the movie was filmed at the theater. Aidan Quinn's theater, Des, worked as a projectionist there. It would finally leave theaters in September, having raked in nearly $27.4 million in ticket sales. May 3rd would see the release of Andrew Davis's Code of Silence. Davis was a writer on 1984's Beat Street, which we covered on our previous episode, and he would go on to direct the one decent Steven Seagal movie, Under Siege, before turning a feature film adaptation of a mostly forgotten 60s television series into something far better than it ever deserved to be. The Fugitive would garner seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, and would win Tommy Lee Jones a long-deserved Oscar. But in 1985, he was stepping up from the final Terror* a cheapy horror film for com-world pictures, to a major motion picture starring one of the decade's major stars, Chuck Norris. Originally written as a possible fourth Dirty Harry movie, before Clint Eastwood decided to make stud- Sudden Impact instead, the script was rewritten to move the action from San Francisco to Davis's hometown of Chicago, and would become noted as the best Chuck Norris film ever made. Code of Silence would also be the last film Dennis Farina would make while he was still a member of the Chicago Police Department, before quitting to become an actor full-time. Code of Silence would open two months after the crappy canon Chuck Norris film Missing in Action 2 The Beginning, and four months before the crappy canon Chuck Norris film Invasion USA. Opening in a then very wide 1,810 screens, Code of Silence would open to number one at the box office with $5.5 million, on its way to a $20.35 million total. Orion Classics would open MacArthur's Children, the Japanese entry to the Best Foreign Language Oscar race in 1984, at the Cinema Studio in New York City on May 17th. Masahiro Shinoda's drama portrayed the impact of the United States' post World War II occupation of Japan from the perspective of the inhabitants of a small rural island community. The film would feature the big-screen debut of future Oscar and Tony Awards nominee Ken Watanabe. In the pages of the New York Times, Vincent Camby would call the film an extremely peculiar movie, which might explain why it didn't get nominated for Best Foreign Language Film or why there is no readily available box-off information for it. June 14, 1985 was an important day for me. It was the day I graduated from Aptos High School. I remember the day well. I had my naturally dark brown hair lightened, I walked the walk, took some photos with the parental units, and then went to enjoy one last night of fun with my friends before I moved to Los Angeles the following morning to break into Hollywood. There was a lot of movies to choose from that day. Pritzy's Honor had opened that day, as had Daryl. There was also Fletch, Rambo First Blood Part Two, the Bond movie A View to a Kill, and Perfect, the John Travolta exercise expose that featured Jamie Lee Curtis in a leotard that decades later would launch a thousand gifts. We ended up seeing The Goonies. One movie we didn't see was David Greenwald's Secret Admirer, a really lousy teen sex comedy where... uh, You know what? I don't know. It sounded like crap when it came out, and I still haven't bothered to see it 35 years later. But I'm sure a lot of horny 17-year-old boys did see the movie, mainly for the numerous nude scenes of Kelly Preston. It's the only explanation as to how this $2 million movie could have possibly grossed $2.4 million from 1,300 screens its opening weekend on the way to an $8.6 million final gross. Greenwald would go on to write for Buffy the Vampire Slayer and co-create the Buffy spinoff Angel, so we'll slightly forgive him for this mess. Marco Belloccio's adaptation of Pirandello's Henry IV featuring the great Marcello Mastroianni as a modern man who believes himself to be the holy Roman emperor from the 11th century, would open at the Embassy 72nd Street Theater in New York City on June 28th, more than a year after it made its premiere at the 1984 Cannes Film Festival. The reviews were polite but reserved, citing the film as the best adaptation of a Pirandello story to the screen to date, and I would love to tell you that this fifth and final pairing of Mastroianni and Claudia Cardinal was as successful as their previous pairings, like Eight and a Half and Big Deal on Madonna Street. But since you've probably not heard of this film, let alone seen it, that should tell you how much of an impact it had at the American box office. Carrie Meadoway's The Heavenly Kid would hit theaters on July 26th. Louis Smith from Buckaroo Bonsai stars as Bobby Fontana, an early 60s greaser who died in a car crash while racing, and has to be a guardian angel until he's earned his wings in order to enter the kingdom of heaven, or Uptown, as it's known in this movie. Jason Gedrick would play his first charge, Lenny, a loser of a teenager who Bobby soon discovers is the son he never knew he had because, you know, he died before his girlfriend could tell him he was about to become a father. It's as silly as it sounds, it's the director's second movie of 1985, and the second of two movies in his directing career. The reviews were bad, and the ticket sales were worse. The film would open in 13th place with $1.6 million from 1,019 screens, well behind National Lampoon's European Vacation and the Black Cauldron, both also which opened the same weekend, and both Pale Rider and St. Elmo's Fire, which had both opened five weeks earlier. The movie would disappear from screens after four weeks and a $3.9 million gross. Wayne Wang's Dim Sum, A Little Bit of Heart, his follow-up to his 1982 breakthrough Chan is Missing, would open in limited release on August 9th. Laureen Chu stars as a widowed 60-something Chinese immigrant living in San Francisco who wants to return to China to pay her respects to her ancestors, but is also worried about a prediction by a fortune teller that she would die later in the year and that her daughter would remain unmarried after her passing. The great Victor Wong would make his film debut as the woman's brother-in-law, and Wang would go on to direct The Joy Luck Club, the first major Hollywood film with a primarily Asian cast. Sadly, the film's box office figures are not readily available, but its modest success was enough to get Wang his next film, the neo-noir thriller Slamdance, starring Tom Hulse and Virginia Madsen. The following Friday, August 16th, Orion would release two movies. The first would be Paul Verhoeven's Flesh and Blood. With a budget of $6.5 million, this romantic historical adventure would be Verhoeven's biggest film to date and his first in English. Rutger Hauer and Jack Thompson played two mercenaries in early 1600-century Italy, former friends who find themselves on opposite sides of a conflict. Jennifer Jason Lee plays what passes as the love interest, and the film also features Tom Berlinson, Ronald Lacey from Raiders of the Lost Ark, Brian James, and Bruno Kirby. Verhoeven needed to make some changes to the script to get Orion to finance the movie, adding the Lee character to this, create an unnecessary love triangle, but even with copious amounts of nakedness and bloodletting, Flesh and Blood would not become a hit with modern audiences if they even knew it was coming out. There were no opening day ads for Flesh and Blood in the New York or Los Angeles Times, and the film would disappear after a couple weeks and only $100,000 in ticket sales. The second was Dan O'Bannon's The Return of the Living Dead, the second of two Night of the Living Dead sequels to be released that summer, the first being George Romero's Day of the Dead, which came out four weeks earlier. Like with two Bond movies back in 1983, the rights concerning the original Night of the Living Dead was a bit complicated. O'Bannon, who was already a legend in the horror community thanks to his helping to create Alien, would be making his feature directing debut here after being brought in to rewrite Night of the Living Dead co-writer John Russo's original story for the film. O'Bannon, who, out of respect for Romero, didn't want to stomp too deeply on that director's firmly established zombie space, decided that a dark, morbid comedy would be a better direction for the film. And he'd be right. Return of the Living Dead would have a slightly higher budget than Romero's dead movie, $4 million versus Romero's three and a half, and O'Bannon's movie would gross more than a Romero's, $14.3 million versus $5.8 million. But to be fair... Romero's movie, because of a lack of an MPAA rating, never played in more than 168 theaters, while O'Bannon's film opened in 1506. Patrick Kelly's beer would arrive in select theaters on August 30th. Loretta Swit from MASH stars in this wannabe satire about a contemptuous advertising executive who, while trying to keep the account of a failing beer company, decides to promote three losers who accidentally prevented a robbery of their bar as a new kind of hero. You'd hope a movie starring Swit, and Rip Torn, and Kenneth Mars, and Wallace Shawn, and David Allen Greer, and William Russ, and produced by Academy Award-winning producer Robert Chardoff, who also had They Shoot Horses, Don't They, Rocky, New York, New York, Raging Bull, and The Right Stuff Under His Belt, Might actually be a decent movie, but it's a complete mess from start to finish. And Patrick Kelly, he would never make another movie. September 27th would see the release of Paul Aaron's Maxie. It's a strange bird of a film. Glenn Close and Mandy Patinkin are a couple who move into an old apartment house in San Francisco who find their lives turned upside down when she's possessed by the spirit of Maxie, an actress from the 1920s who died the day before her big audition for Hollywood. Repressed people being possessed by the ghosts of others was a mini-genre in the mid-1980s, and coming nearly a year after the best of them, the Steve Martin, Lily Tomlin, All of Me, didn't help Maxie all that well. It's interesting to see a younger, close try physical comedy. Patinkin is always great in just about everything, and Maxie also features Ruth Gordon and Bernard Hughes, who are eternally enjoyable to watch. Maxi would open in seven hundred and seventy eight theaters and gross only one point one million dollars, and Orion would stop tracking the film after three weeks and two point five six million in the coffers. October fourth would see Orion Classics doing a two fur release. Ian Munes Came a Hot Friday was a comedy from New Zealand about two grifters in nineteen forty nine who are trying to keep their horse racing scam running as long as they can. When it opened at the Embassy 72nd Street Theater in New York City, the film was promoted by offering the first 9,857 people to see the movie a free can of black kiwi shoe polish. The film may have been one of the biggest hits of all time in its home country, but there's no word on how many cans of shoe polish were returned to Orion. The film would only play for two weeks in New York City, and then never play in any other theater in America. Istvan Svabo's Hungarian drama Colonel Riedl was the other Orion Classics movie released on October 4th. This biographical drama would star Klaus Maria Brandauer as the real-life Alfred Riedl, a leading world figure in espionage before World War I. Brandauer and Szabo had previously teamed on 1982's Best Foreign Language Film winner Ms. Fisto. And again, their film would be nominated for the same award, although this time they would lose to Argentina's The Official Story. Also starring Armin mueller stahl as Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the movie would open at the 57th Street Playhouse in New York City and would gross only $2,357 those first three days. Orion would stop tracking grosses after that, but the film would still open in Los Angeles at the Beverly Center a week later and would continue to open in major markets for three more months. The following Friday, October 11th, would see the first big-screen adaptation of the Destroyer series of pulp paperbacks by Warren Murphy and Richard Sapir. At $40 million, Guy Hamilton's Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins was the second most expensive movie Orion would finance to date, and there were high hopes for the start of a franchise. Hamilton had directed four Bond movies with the Orion team while they were all still at United Artists, Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, Live and Let Die, and The Man with the Golden Gun, and, this, and the Destroyer book series had several dozen books to pull future film stories from. Orion wanted an, an American Bond, and Fred Ward, who would play the titular hero, was signed to, meet, to make at least four other movies. But the Destroyer cinematic universe would be dead on arrival. During the four-day Columbus Day holiday weekend it opened, Remo Williams would only gross $3.38 million from 1170 screens. After 12 weeks, mostly as the B title at drive-ins and at dollar houses, Remo Williams would have only grossed $12.4 million. Joel Grey, hidden under pounds of latex to play Remo's Asian trainer, would be nominated for a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actor, and those makeup artists would later be nominated for an Academy Award. But Remo Williams' adventures would not continue. Shane Black was, as recently as 2018, working on a new Destroyer movie for Sony Pictures. Orion Classics would close the year on December 20th with their most ambitious movie to date, Akira Kurosawa's Ron. Heavily inspired by Shakespeare's King Lear, the $11 million film would be the highest-budgeted Japanese movie ever made to that point. Kurosawa would would spend 10 years storyboarding every shot from the film. The costume department, led by Emi Wada, spent two years creating the 1,400 uniforms and suits of honor used in the film. And Kurosawa would spend more than two years filming and editing the film himself. The final product, which would run two hours and 42 minutes, would be amongst the best-reviewed movies of kurosawa career. It would win Best Picture, Best Foreign Language, and or Best Director awards from the London Film Critics Circle, the Los Angeles Film Critics Association, the National Board of Review, the National Society of Film Critics, and the New York Film Critics Circle. But despite all these accolades, the film would not be very successful in America or the rest of the world. In its home country of Japan, the film would only sell about $12 million worth of tickets. In America, the film would only earn about $2.1 million and never play on more than 30 screens on any given week. Ron would be nominated for four Academy Awards, Art Direction, Cinematography, Costume Design, and Akira Kurosawa for Best Director his one and only nomination in this category for his 29th film at the age of 74. The film would win one Oscar for costume design, and over the ensuing 35 years, Ron would be recognized worldwide as one of Kurosawa's absolute masterpieces. I was fortunate enough to see it at the Royal Theater in West Los Angeles the week it was released, and it was life-changing. I had seen other Kurosawa movies on television on VHS tape, or at a repertory theater, but this would be the first time I would see a Kurosawa movie in a first-run theater with a good-sized screen, and it would completely alter the trajectory of what I was willing to see. For a time in the mid-1990s, while working as a manager for Landmark theaters, I even had my own little film library at my theater, The New Wilshire in Santa Monica. 35 millimeter prints of movies owned by Landmark, which included the full uncut 207 minute version of Seven Samurai. I must have watched that in the middle of the night after the theater was closed at least a half a dozen times. When the nominations for the 58th Academy Awards were announced on February 5th, 1986, four Orion movies would be nominated for seven awards, winning that one best costume award for Ron. Now 1985 was not a very good year for Orion. Of the 13 movies they released, only three could be considered even remotely profitable. Code of Silence, Desperately Seeking Susan, and The Return and the Living Dead. Things were so bad financially that they would cancel a, a number of upcoming productions, including a lower-budgeted Brian De Palma horror film called The Peacemaker. That's peace as in like a piece from a jigsaw puzzle. What was it about? Who knows? A promo reel was created for it in 1985 to try and drum up foreign sales. A pretty young woman is taking a shower. There's something lurking outside the bathroom. She's unaware of the figure's presence. It opens the door to the bathroom. She's still unaware. The figure comes closer to the shower. It opens the shower door. Droplets of blood fall on the white tiled floor. She turns around. She sees the bloody hatchet in the figure's hands. The hatchet comes down with extreme force. Blood splatters all over the tiled wall of the shower. Then the title appears, The Peacemaker. No, from Brian De Palma. No listed actors, no expected release date. And the promo reel looks like it was shot on video. Something slightly better than a camcorder, but less than whatever news stations were using at the time and 1986 would not start off any better. Their first film, Par Bartel's The Long Shots, would open on January 17th. This comedy about four guys who borrow a bunch of money from a mobster to bet on a, quote, sure thing, unquote, at the track that doesn't end up winning should have been a very funny movie. And in addition to Bartell in the director's seat, you have a screenplay written by Tim Conway who also stars alongside his Carol Burnett Show co-star Harvey Corman, along with Jack Weston and Ann Mira, Edie McClurg and Eddie Deason and Jonathan Winters. Mike Nichols was the executive producer, and the great Robbie Muller, who had recently shot both Repo Man and Paris, Texas, was the cinematographer. That's an impressive lineup, but the film is a total and complete mess. Conway wrote the first draft in 10 hours, on the 4th of July in 1984, when he realized he had no other plans for the holiday. And within a year, it was financed at $10 million and was in production throughout Los Angeles. Six months later, the film would open in 124 theaters, where it would gross $256,000. Orion would stop tracking the film after that weekend. In connection with their release of Ron, Orion Classics would release Chris Marker's A.K. on January 29th. Marker's film was originally supposed to document the making of Ron, but the film would spend more time examining Kurosawa's personality, as well as Marker's own fascination with Japanese culture. The film would only play for two weeks at New York City's Film Forum. Once again, Orion released two movies on the same day, this time on February 7th, the movies were Robert Mandel's FX and Woody Allen's Hannah and Her Sisters. Most movies that are tangentially about movies and movie making are not very good. The 10 million dollar FX would be one of the few that broke that mold. Brian Brown plays a movie makeup artist who is hired by the justice department to help fake the death of a mob informant who is about to go into the witness protection program, and Brian Dennehy is a New York police detective investigating the murder. Well, it's not 100% accurate, but FX is one of those movies you really want to go into as blind as possible. It's an excellent movie, and like many Orion Pictures, has an amazing supporting cast, including Mason Adams, Clifty Young, Joe Grafossi, Tom Noonan, Diane Venora, and Trey Wilson. The film was a surprise success when it opened. While it would only open to $3.24 million from 914 screens, the film would continue to play throughout the winter and spring, grossing more than $20.6 million when Orion stopped tracking it in late summer. The $6.4 million Hannah and her sisters, featuring Mia Farrow, Barbara Hershey, and Diane Wiest as the three New York City-based siblings negotiating their lives and loves, would become Allen's biggest film to date. And like many Orion pictures, had an astonishing supporting cast, including Allen. Louis Black, Michael Caine, Carrie Fisher, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Julie Kavner, Lloyd Nolan, Maureen O'Sullivan, Tony Roberts, Daniel Stern, John Turturro, Max von Sydow, J.T. Walsh, and Sam Waterston. The film's structure is near genius, and the inventive ways the various stories weave in and out of themselves helped Allen win his second Oscar for Best Original Screenplay, and both Caine and Weist would win their respective Supporting Actor categories. The film only opened in 54 screens, but it would gross $1.27 million. The film would continue to add screens every week until week seven, when it would hit its widest release in 761 theaters. The film would play throughout the winter, the spring, the summer, and the fall, grossing more than $40 million when the film would finally leave theaters just before Christmas. Orion Classic's release of Stephen Friars' My Beautiful Laundrette happened on March 7th and would change the trajectory of Frears, writer Hanif Karishi, and star Daniel Day-Lewis' careers. The story of two friends, a young Pakistani man and a British street punk who become custodians and managers of a laundrette before becoming lovers, was originally made for British television network Channel 4 with a budget under a million dollars and it was shot on 16 millimeter film. The movie would make its world premiere at the 1984 Edinburgh Film Festival, where the reception was so strong that producers would renegotiate the contract so that it could be released into theaters worldwide. In America, the film would never play in more than a handful of screens at any given time, but it would play for more than a year and gross more than $2.45 million. Kurosawa would be nominated for an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay. Fur would make a few more smaller British films before hitting Hollywood with the one-two punch of Dangerous Liaisons and the Grifters. And Day-Lewis would go on to make The Unbearable Lightness of Being and My Left Foot and become the greatest actor of his generation. Two weeks later, March 21st, Orion would release Alan Burns's Just Between Friends, Produced by MTM Enterprises, the production company of Mary Tyler Moore, the drama would star Moore and Christine Lottie as two friends whose friendship is based on a lie and tested due to tragedy. The film also stars Ted Danson and Sam Waterston and would draw some pretty bad reviews when it was released. The film would open in 352 theaters and gross $1.39 million on its way to a final gross of $6.4 million. For the second time in three months, Orion would release two movies on the same day, this time on April 18th. The first was James Foley's At Close Range, another fact-based crime drama starring Sean Penn. Christopher Walken also stars as the leader of a gang of rural criminals, and Penn is his estranged son who desperately wants to become a part of the team. Mary Stuart Masterson plays Penn's girlfriend, and like many Orion Pictures, has an astounding supporting cast including Candy Clark, Stephen Jeffries, Crispin Glover, Chris Penn, J.C. Quinn, Eileen Ryan, David Strathairn, Kiefer Sutherland, and Tracy Walter. The $6.5 million film would only open in 39 theaters and gross a respectable $180,000, but it would never play in more than 83 theaters at its widest point and would only gross $2.37 million when it was finished. Most people today don't know the film at all but they do know the theme song for the movie which was written and performed by the then Mrs. Sean Penn. The other April Eighteenth release was Julian Temple's absolute beginners. With a budget of more than 13 million dollars, the film was one of the most expensive British productions to date. In 1958 London, two young lovers try to traverse the quickly changing racial, political, and musical landscape. But Temple, the Sex Pistols documentarian turned music video director making his feature debut here, is just the wrong person to guide the film. What this film needed was a seasoned veteran well-versed in cinema magic. Someone like an Alan Parker, who had already made two exceptional musical movies in Bugsy Malone and Pink Floyd the Wall and would go on to make another exceptional musical movie a few years later in The Commitments. Or a Richard Lester, whose two movies with the Beatles literally invented many of the tropes of music videos that Temple would be employing 20 years later. Or even a Ken Russell, whose film adaptation of The Who's Tommy concept album was just gonzo enough to work. It also needed better actors in the leading roles. Eddie O'Connell and Patsy Kensett might have had movie star looks, but they didn't have movie star chops. But what it did have was several of the biggest names in British music at the time in supporting roles, including David Bowie, Ray Davies of the Kinks, and Shaw Day. I will forever be grateful to the film for giving me one of my top 10 Bowie songs of all time. But it's not worth sitting through just to hear the title song. When the film was in production, the British press corps covered it intensely. But when the movie opened, critics on both sides of the Atlantic panned the film, and audiences would soundly reject it. In the UK, Absolute Beginners couldn't reach two million pounds in ticket sales, and in the States, the film couldn't clear a million dollars. The absolute failure of Absolute Beginners was one of the final nails in the coffin for the giant British production company Goldcrest Films. Peter Wang's A Great Wall would be significant as the first American movie to be shot in the People's Republic of China, and Orion Classics would release it to theaters on May 30th. A Chinese-American Silicon Valley executive returns to his homeland for the first time in 30 years to visit his sister, who still lives in Beijing. The comedy comes from what would be now stereotypical culture clashes, but in 1985 it would be groundbreaking since communist China was still mostly closed to the Western world. The film would find a big supporter in Roger Ebert and would play in New York and Los Angeles theaters well into September. June 13th would see the release of Alan Metter's Back to School, the third of three movies Orion would make starring Rodney Dangerfield. Dangerfield would help come up with the story, and Harold Ramis would help write the screenplay about a wealthy self-made man who decides to go to college with his son to keep the younger man from dropping out. Keith Gordon, who also starred in All That Jazz, Dressed to Kill, and most famously as the owner of the titular Possessed Car in Christine, plays Dangerous Field's son. And this would be his last major outing as an actor before switching gears to become a writer and director of great movies like The Chocolate War and A Midnight Clear. And once again, the casting agents for an Orion movie knock it out of the park when it comes to the supporting cast. Sally Kellerman plays the love interest... Adrian Barbeau, his ex-wife, Billy Zabka as the bully, yeah, big shock there, and then there's Ned Beatty, Robert Downey Jr., Terry Farrell, Sam Kennison, Robert Picardo, M. Emmett Walsh, and even a rare cameo from none other than Kurt Vonnegut. Danny Elfman wrote the score for the movie, and he and his band Oingo Boingo also appear. The $11 million movie, produced by Chuck Russell before he went off to direct A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and the 1988 remake of The Blob, both co-written with Frank Darabont, would be a smash hit right out of the gate. The film would open to number one with $8.9 million from 1,605 screens and would never lose more than 30% of its previous weekend gross for the first 17 weeks of its run. When it was all done around Christmas time, Back to School would become Dangerfield's highest grossing film and Orion's second highest-grossing film to date, with $91.26 million in ticket sales. Jim Coff's Miracles allegedly got some kind of regional theatrical release on July 11th. I don't know which region, because I cannot find a single review for the film from that time. I did find an early 1986 article in in the Los Angeles Times that mentioned the movie, which was originally supposed to be released the previous summer, that stated the delay was due to an extended post-production schedule and because the studio didn't have the right marketing for the movie. If the final poster, which features Tom Conte and Terry Garr, standing in a desert with a small plane crashed way in the background, was the right marketing for the movie, I'd hate to think what the wrong marketing for it was. The movie, about a divorcing couple who are thrown back together by circumstance, also features Christopher Lloyd, Paul Rodriguez, and the late, great Charles Rocket. If someone can find a verifiable play date at an American theater, please let me know. The Woman in Red was the worst movie Gene Wilder had written or directed, that is, until Orion released Haunted Honeymoon into theaters on July 25th. The $13 million comedy featured Wilder and his real-life wife Gilda Radner as the about-to-be-married stars of a murder mystery radio serial who go to his childhood home in order to help him overcome a case of the jitters he's developed since proposing. Now, I love Gene Wilder. I loved Gilda Radner. And I loved Dom Deloise. I miss them and their humor terribly. Haunted Honeymoon is still a bad movie, one that I would never want to revisit again, no matter how much I would have loved to see all those three together. The movie would open to 8th place with $2.7 million from 1,046 screens, even worse than the Stephen King movie Maximum Overdrive, which also opened the same week. One other thing that Haunted Honeymoon and Maximum Overdrive have in common, their directors would never direct another movie again. Haunted Honeymoon would disappear from screens after only 6 weeks and $8 million in ticket sales. Eric Carson's opposing force, may have opened in August 1986, or maybe July. It may have been re- released as Opposing Force, or maybe Hell Camp. No one's really sure. It does feature a pretty sweet cast, including Tom Skerritt, Lisa Eichhorn, Anthony Zerbe, and Richard, Richard Roundtree. story goes something like this. A group of elite soldiers, including one woman, sign up for the ultimate training mission, The group parachutes onto a remote island where their objective is to reach the safety zone before the opposing voice captures them. Everything does not go as expected, and the training mission turns into the real thing. It sounds like a canon film, and in the trailer for the film, it looks like a canon film. And again, if you can find a verifiable playdate at an American theater, please let me know. Orion Classics would release Eric Romer's The Green Ray, in American theaters on August ninth, under the title Summer. It was the fifth of his Comedies and Proverbs series, and the third to be released by Orion Classics. Marie Rivet, who co-wrote the story with Romer, stars as Delphine, a Parisian secretary whose plans for a summer holiday keep going askew. The reviews were university, universally glowing, including praise from Andrew Sarris, Molly Haskell, and Roger Ebert, and the film would open at the prestigious Lincoln Plaza Cinemas on New York City's Upper West Side. Michael Hoffman's Scottish adventure comedy Restless Natives would be Orion Classics' next release on September 12th. Restless Natives would be part of a wave of Scottish movies that would arrive in American theaters throughout the 80s and featured Vincent Friel and John Mullaney as two young men from Edinburgh who become modern-day Robin Hoods by robbing tourists in the Scottish Highlands and scattering the money throughout their hometown. The movie also features a rock score by the Scottish band Big Country, and Ned Beatty shows up for a time as a short-tempered CIA agent brought in to help capture the criminals. The movie would open at the 72nd Street Cinemas in New York, but wouldn't open in Los Angeles until October 3rd when it opened at my beloved Cineplex Beverly Center. Ronald Neem's Foreign Body opened on September twenty-sixth. For Neem, the director of the original Poseidon Adventure and the Prime of Miss Jean Brody, Foreign Body would be his 24th and final film. Victor Banerjee, the Bengali actor who had made his English-language debut two years earlier in David Lean's A Passage to India, stars as an unemployed man in Calcutta who steals money from his father in order to move to England. It's a sad end to Neem's career, which included two Oscar nominations for co-writing the screenplays for David Lean's Brief Encounter and Great Expectations, a British sex comedy that's light on the sex and lighter on the comedy. Orion Classics would bring Andre Tarkovsky's final film, The Sacrifice, to theaters on November 7th. Orion Classics was high on the film, spending thousands of dollars in small ads featuring quotes from the likes of Ingmar Bergman about Tarkovsky and his works. This film, like many of his films, were dramas with vague connections to science fiction. The Sacrifice starts at the dawn of World War III, as a man searches for a way to restore peace to the world and discovers he must give something in return. Erlan Josephson, who was featured in 15 of Ingmar Bergman's best films, including Cries and Whispers, Scenes from a Marriage, and Fanny and Alexander, stars as the man, The film would get some of Tarkovsky's best reviews of his entire career, and would open in the big house at Lincoln Plaza in New York City. The film would continue to play through theaters throughout the winter and spring, although its final box office tally would barely pass $300,000. Sadly, Tarkovsky would die in Paris on December 29th while his film was making its way through America. On his gravestone, Mrs. Tarkovsky had a special inscription added, To the man who saw the angel. Orion would also release a movie on November 7th, Jonathan Demme's Something Wild, the first of three movies Demme would make with Orion over a five-year period, culminating with The Silence of the Lambs in 1991. Something Wild features Jeff Daniels as Charlie Driggs, an ostensibly by-the-books banker who finds himself on an amazing adventure with a mysterious brunette Lulu, played by Melanie Griffith. It's also the film that would introduce Ray Liotta to the world, And we are better as film fans for that. Something Wild is my favorite demi non documentary, a topsy turvy, psychosexual wild ride of a film with one of the greatest tonal shifts in film history. And the soundtrack, which featured 10 of the 49 songs played throughout the film, is incredible. There's David Byrne and Celia Cruz. Fine Young Cannibals doing the buzzcocks. A new song from Oingo Boingo. a New Order classic... And a great reggae-tinged wild thing from Sister Carol. Shout and say, join in the ring It could be queen or it could be king You go your way and i go mine As long as you just make it fun Come rain or shine some drinking wine The so movement dressed like Frankenstein Move up your waist, your bob your line But just you do it right on time And for good measure, there's new tracks from Jerry Harrison from Talking Heads, Steve Jones from the Sex Pistols, Jimmy Cliff, and UB-40. The only crime about the soundtrack album is that none of the songs performed by the feelies in the movie, including this version of David Bowie's Fame, appear. were great. Daniels, Griffith, and Leota would all get nominated for Golden Globes, and the movie would eventually get a fantastic Criterion Blu-ray release in 2011. But in 1986, audiences weren't ready for Something Wild. Opening on 914 screens, Something Wild would open in seventh place with only $1.825 million in ticket sales, even worse than the completely forgotten adaptation of James Clavel's tai Pan*. Orion would stop tracking it after the first of the year, having only collected eight point three six million dollars. November fourteenth would see the release of David Anspa's Hoosiers. These six individuals have made a choice to work, a choice to sacrifice, put themselves on the line, to represent you, this high school. This is your team. Hoosiers they needed a second chance to finish first well, welcome ladies and gentlemen to the championship game you're not the new coach are you expecting somebody different <laughs> younger most incredible and improbable confrontations well those of you who don't know my name is norman dale i coach college ball for 10 years but it's been 12 years since i've blown this in the illustrious history of the indiana high school basketball tournament that's a hell of a team you had there you knew that team I know everything there is to know about the greatest game ever invented. With a pint size hardly big enough for three syllables, Hickory Huskers, enrollment 64. Out of here, right now. You kicking me out? Yes. Don't come back until you learn to keep your mouth shut and listen. Take on the defending state champions, the mighty bears of South Bend Central. Run you off the boards. You got to squeeze them back in the paint. Make them chuck it from the cheap seats. Already calling this the game of the century. I've seen them, the real sad ones, they sit around the rest of their lives talking about the glory days. Those people from all over the Middle West are here to witness Hoosierland's version of the Cinderella story. It's got to work out this time, that's it for good. The starting lineup for the Huskers. Boy, my boys only know basketball farming in school. A basketball hero around here is treated like a god. You know most people would kill me. Be treated like a god just for a few moments. Forget about the crowds, the size of the school, their fancy uniforms, and remember what got you. If you put your effort and concentration into playing to your potential to be the best that you can be, I don't care what the scoreboard says at the end of the game, in my book, we're going to be winners. Let's win this and for all the small schools who never had a chance to get here. Gene Hackman, Barbara Hershey, Dennis Hopper, Hoosiers. They needed a second chance to finish first. Loosely based on the story of the improbable state championship won by the 1954 Milan High School basketball team, Hoosiers is one of the best sports movies ever made. Even if you hate basketball, the performances of Hackman, Hershey, and Hopper are enchanted, and the pacing will keep you excited to the end. Originally, Orion had little hope for the film, and would only make a deal if the filmmakers kept the budget to just $6 million, to film a period piece, on location, in Indiana. They were able to get the budget raised to $9 million before shooting began, which was a lucky break, as it would rain 28 of the 30 days of shooting. Anspaugh made the best of shooting in his home state, stretching his small budget as far as it could go, even resorting to shooting crowd and game footage during actual high school basketball games. And despite a test screening in Los Angeles that scored very well, Orion wouldn't release the film in Los Angeles or New York City at first. It all would depend on how well the film did in Indiana. Thirty screens in and around Indianapolis, Fort Wayne, South Bend, and Bloomington opened the film and the film would have the second-highest per-screen average of any film playing in the nation. Two weeks later, for Thanksgiving weekend, Orion added 44 more screens in the Midwest. Two weeks after that, on December 9th, the film would finally open in Los Angeles, although it would only be a one-week Oscar-qualifying run at the Coronet in Westwood, and the producers needed to come up with the money to even get that. But the one-week run would become two weeks, and it would add a second screen. And then three weeks. And then four. Then five weeks. And Orion would have also have sneak previews at 47 more theaters in the greater Los Angeles region that Saturday. It would be January 16th when 64 more theaters from Santa Barbara to Pulp Springs to Oceanside would finally open the film in Southern California. But Chicago New York City and most of the rest of the country would have to wait until February 27, 1987, 16 weeks after the film opened in Indiana and 16 days after the film had been nominated for Best Supporting Actor and Best Score to finally see the movie. It would expand to 1,039 screens that week, and the film would gross $3.6 million that weekend, and it would continue to perform well for the next several weeks. In the past few years, a film is to considered to have legs if it loses less than 30% of its audience from the previous week. In weeks 17 through 21 of Hoosier's Run, the first five weeks the film would play nationally, its per-week drops were 22%, 14%, 16%, 15%, and 9%. While most theaters would end their play dates before the start of the summer movie season in May, a few theaters in Indiana played the movie for up to 59 weeks. And in the end, Hoosiers would tally up more than $28.6 million in ticket sales. So why was Orion so slow on the take to see the appeal of Hoosiers? It's because they were busy with their last two big releases of the year. One, a broad comedy, featured three of the biggest names in that field, and the other a serious drama, one that would tackle the horrors of the Vietnam War in ways not yet seen on screen. John Landis's Three Amigos would open on December 12th, and Orion was excited to have it. Despite the accident on the set of the Twilight Zone movie that took the lives of Vic Morrow and two Asian child actors, Landis was still a big name in comedy, especially when it came to movies starring actors from Saturday Night Live. Animal House made John Belushi a movie star. The Blues Brothers would prove Belushi and Dan Aykroyd could survive leaving the show. Trading Places solidified Eddie Murphy's place as a comedy's next superstar by teaming him with Aykroyd. And now Landis was working with Chevy Chase and Martin Short and regular SNL host Steve Martin and Phil Hartman and John Lovitz, both of whom were then-current cast members. The movie was being co-produced and co-written by Lorne Michaels, the creator of Saturday Night Live. And if that wasn't enough, the other two screenwriters for the film were Steve Martin and songwriter Randy Newman, who also wrote three new songs for the movie. The story is rather flimsy. Chase, Martin, and Short play three silent film actors during the early days of Hollywood who travel to Mexico at the invitation of a fan of their movies who think they really are cowboys unaware that they're not being asked to make a personal appearance, but to help protect the town from bandits. After filming was completed, Landis would be on trial for the Twilight Zone tragedy, and Orion would cut the film down after Landis turned in his final cut. The $25 million film would open in 1,385 screens, and would come in third place with $5.93 million, on its way to a respectable $39.25 million total gross when it was played out by early spring. Oliver Stone's Platoon would open in Los Angeles and New York City on December 19th. After returning from active duty service in Vietnam, Oliver Stone wanted to tell the story of what happened to him while he served and how it affected his parents. The first version of the screenplay, then titled Break, would feature several of the characters that would make it to the final film and was set to the music of The Doors. Stone even managed to get the screenplay to Jim Morrison, who Stone wanted to play the lead role. It's said that the script to break was amongst Morrison's possessions when he died. Stone would later mentor with playwright and screenwriter Robert Bolt, whose credits include Lawrence of Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, A Man for All Season, and Ryan's Daughter. He helped Stone rework the story, which was now being called the cover-up. Stone claimed during this time, Sidney Lumet was interested in directing the movie, and that Al Pacino was Lumet's choice for the leading role. That, of course, never happened, But based on the strength of the screenplay for what was now being called The Platoon, Stone was able to forge a career as an in-demand screenwriter. Finally, a series of lucky breaks would fall Stone's way. In 1984, producer Dano De Laurentiis wanted to hire Stone to rewrite the screenplay for his upcoming film, The Year of the Dragon, which was being directed by Stone's friend, the Deer Hunter director, Michael Cimino. Stone made a deal with De Laurentiis that included the provision that Stone would cut his rate to $200,000 if De Laurentiis would help get the platoon made. De Laurentiis was able to secure financing for the platoon, but couldn't get a distributor interested in releasing the movie, which would incidentally be another reason why De Laurentiis would eventually start his own distribution company. But then the producer got cold feet and shopped the screenplay around town one more time. John Daly of Hemdale Pictures had already agreed to produce Stone's next movie, Salvador, and decided to produce both Salvador and The Platoon. Salvador, being the smaller movie, was shot first in Central America before Stone headed off to the Philippines to finally, after more than 15 years, make the movie he always wanted to make. Stone and casting directors Pat Golden, Warren McLean, and Bob Morones assembled a team of young actors to play the squad that would blow your mind hole today. Charlie Sheen would get cast as Chris, the story stand-in for Stone himself. John C. McGinley would be the sergeant. Other newer actors would include Keith David, Johnny Depp, Kevin Dillon, Richard Edson, Corey Glover, who would later become better known as the lead singer for Living Color, Mark Moses, Tony Todd, and Forrest Whitaker. That's an impressive cast. And the platoon would be led by two older but still young and definitely more experienced actors, Tom Berenger, and Willem Dafoe. Dale Dye, a retired Marine Corps captain, had wanted to see Hollywood's depiction of war battles to be more realistic, and he was able to get Stone to let Dye run the young actors through a 30-day mock boot camp. Dye would also play a small role in the film, and the success of the film would help Dye create Warriors Incorporated, an advisory company specializing in portraying realistic military action in movies televisions, and video games. You can thank Di for helping the makers of Casualties of War, Saving Private Ryan, Band of Brothers, the Pacific, and the Medal of Honor video game series to create such realistic battle scenes. So the six and a half million dollar film is about to go into production in the Philippines. The actors are almost done with their mock boot camp, and then Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos and his family had to flee the country. The deal with the Philippine government to use military's equipment for filming is on the verge of falling apart, which would mean the cancellation of the movie. But thanks to the quick intervention of an Asian producer who had nothing to do with the production and had only heard of their trouble through the proverbial grapevine, the shooting commences as scheduled two days later. Production would last 56 days, and platoon, now minus the the at the start of the title, would be one of the few movies to be shot in chronological order. Unlike Stone's troubles with Hemdale during the post-production of Salvador, which we covered in Episode 9 of this podcast, the post-production of Platoon was smooth and uneventful. When Orion would finally see the final film, they knew what they had, and they were ready to go for the gold once again. Orion would open Platoon on six screens on December 19th, and the film would have one of the best per-screen averages of the year, $40,180. The day after Christmas, Orion would triple the number of screens nationwide, and it would still have the nation's best per screen average. The first week of 1987, another tripling of the screen, and still the highest PSA. The following week, it would only add 14 more screens, but the PSA was still nearly six and a half times more than the next highest film. Fifth week, another 101 screens added, and the per-screen average is still over $20,000. Seventh week, the film finally expands to 590 screens and takes the number one spot for the first time. The next biggest movie that weekend, Outrageous Fortune, plays on twice as many screens and grosses $2 million less. Week eight, the film is now playing on 856 screens. The per-screen average drops below $10,000 for the first time, but it's still double the next highest movie. Week 9, it expands to 1,194 screens. It's the first weekend after the Academy Award nominations announcement. Platoon is tied with A Room with a View for the most nominations with eight. Best Picture, Director, Original Screenplay, two nominations for Best Supporting Actor, Cinematography, Editing, and Sound. It's the first and only time the movie would gross over $10 million in a single weekend. And it's still the number one movie in America. It still has the highest per-screen average. And it just keeps going and going and going. Its 16th week in theater, the first week in April, is the first weekend after it wins four Oscars, including Best Picture. And it's the weekend the film will be at its widest point of release, 1,564 screens. It's already earned over $100 million by this point, and it keeps going and going and going. It won't drop below a 1,000 screens until week 23, Memorial Day weekend. The film will slowly lose screens, 100 here, 100 there, and Orion would keep tracking the grosses until the third week of January 1988, when it finally comes out on videotape with $138.5 million in the bank. It would be Orion's highest-grossing film of the entire decade, a film they had passed on multiple times at the script stage before taking it as part of their output deal with Hemdale Pictures. The Academy Awards would smile brightly on Orion Pictures for 1986. Although only three of their films would get nominated, Hannah and Her Sisters, Hoosiers, and Platoon, They would combine for 17 nominations, the most for any distributor that year. Four of the five nominees for Best Supporting Actor would come from an Orion picture. Platoon would take four Oscars, including Best Director, Best Editing, and Best Sound, along with that Best Picture, while Hannah and her sisters would collect three. It would be another four years before they had as good a year at the Oscars as they did in 1986. But there's still one more film to talk about, Carlos Suárez' El Amor Brujo, which Orion Classics would release on Tuesday, December 23rd. El Amor Brujo was the third film in a loose trilogy of films Suárez was making about flamenco dancing. The previous film in the series, Carmen, was released by Orion Classics in 1983, and for several years would be the highest-grossing Spanish-language foreign film to ever be distributed in the United States. El amor brujo features a woman who is in love with one man, but is forced into an arranged marriage by her father. Her husband is actually in love with another woman, and dies while defending that woman's honor. The wife's true love is arrested for her husband's murder, and her true love spends several years in prison for that crime he did not commit. Once he's freed, the two lovers must first exorcise the ghost of the dead husband, who reappears every night to dance with his wife. The woman's grandmother comes up with a solution that could benefit everyone involved, and the movie ends with a climactic flamenco dance sequence. The film would not be nearly as successful as the previous title in the series, but Sarr would continue to make dance movies for the next 30-plus years. One of those, 1998's Tango, would be released by the same team as the one who supported him at Orion Classics, but we'll get more into that in another episode. But Tango would also be nominated for Best Foreign Language Film. And that's going to wrap it up for this third episode at our look back at Orion Pictures. Our next episode will cover the next two years in Orion's history, 1987 and 1988. Woody Allen waxes poetically about those good old radio days. The future of law enforcement will arrive. Kevin Costner discovers there's no way out from becoming a star. Brian Dennehy becomes a bestseller. Louis Maul says goodbye to the children. Danny DeVito will throw Mama from the train. Cherry fucking 2000. Daniel Day-Lewis, Lena Oland, and Juliette Binoche live the unbearable lightness of being. Vim Vender soars on wings of desire. Kevin Costner believes in the hanging curveball, high fiber in good scotch among many things. Michelle Pfeiffer is married to the mob. John Sayles writes and directs the other great baseball movie, Orion Pictures, would release in a three-month period. Pedro Almodovar introduces us to women on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Mississippi is burning. And Michael Caine and Steve Martin are a couple of dirty, rotten scoundrels. All that and more on the next episode of the Film Jerk Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Film Jerk Podcast has been written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens. As we are an independent podcast without sponsors or a network of websites to help promote the show, we rely on word of mouth to get the word out about the show. Please help get the word out. Please post about the Film Jerk Podcast on your socials. Please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast source. Good ratings and reviews help get the podcast higher rankings, which help the show get seen by more potential listeners. And, as always, I look forward to your comments about the show. You can leave me a note on this podcast's page at FilmJerk.com, or you can leave me a message on my Twitter feeds at Edward A. Havens or at FilmJerk. The FilmJerk podcast has been a production of Idiosyncratic Entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.